Today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1 to 13. Please feel free to take your pew Bible to go along. The version I'll be reading will be from the NIV translation. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of town trembled. When they met him, they asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely, Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shema pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Jane, for reading that. And thank you so much, Grace, for that song. Um, and thank you for all the gifts that you've given to our church. I, I really do believe that 
we are uh, more encouraged. And I, I think that you have given us a lot as a result of your presence here, so thank you. Um, and that's true for all of you. Thank, thank you for, for what you bring to our community. I, we, we are changed because of your presence here. So I'm going to start with a, a story. Um, so during middle school, um, some family friends were moving, and they were getting rid of some gym equipment. They had a full-body uh, full home gym with weight plates and pulley systems. I mean, it was awesome. Um, it was a really nice machine that, that you could just imagine at your local gym. Uh, and it did pretty much everything. Uh, it, it had the pull-downs, it, it had the, the pulls, it had leg extensions, leg curls, um, it had, had uh, uh, chest presses, it, it, it did pretty much everything. Um, and me being a sucker for a deal, I liked the $10 price tag, and so I was willing to live with the responsibility of breaking this down, transporting it, and setting this up. Uh, mind you, I'm in middle school. Um, and so I showed up with my tools, um, a hammer and a screwdriver. <laughs> uh, I set out to work um, while my mom was upstairs and she was having coffee with our family friends. And so, gosh, this had a lot of pieces. I, I thought, how am I going to remember where everything goes? But I started and uh, click, there's, there's the first screw uh, loosened. And my, my screwdriver didn't fit perfectly. These were little hex screws and I just had a regular Phillips head, but I made it work. So I took out another screw, and actually the overhead bar just drops at that point. And I realize, okay, I'd better think through how I'm going to put this back together so I don't forget where things go. And so I got, I got a piece of paper, a lined piece of paper, and I put it on the shaggy carpet, and I had a crayon, and I tried to draw it to the best of my ability, and I wish I still had that drawing. Um, it epitomizes the folly of youth, let me tell you. <laughs> So I went up and down those stairs with, it got to be over 400 pounds of weight plates, all the metal bars, the hardware. And when we got home, I brought it all downstairs into our, uh, our spare room. I laid it out and I wondered to myself, you know, it's cheating with a puzzle to look at the box, but is it cheating to look at that, that master blueprint that I drew for myself? No, it wasn't. But what is this? I couldn't actually tell which way was up in my drawing. It was that bad. Um, so I decided I'd re-engineer it um, from memory. Eventually, I did find a 100 by 100 pixel thumbnail of the, the, the product online to use as a reference. All afternoon, I, I was moving things this way and that until finally I reattached the bar on the top, which, by the way, needed me to remove a ceiling tile. <laughs> because our basement was smaller than theirs. And now it came for the moment of truth. I, I, I think I brought everyone in the family down to watch the debut. And this was a comedy of errors. I was about to do the chest press, but it didn't bulge. Oh wait, it was 200 pounds, okay. I'm gonna move it down to 100 pounds, which mind you, I weighed 100 pounds soaking wet. So it still didn't budge. Moved it to 50, moved it to 20. And I tried it 10 pounds, and I barely prod the thing forward. You know, my dad tried it and had a similar result. So I felt a little bit better about my manhood at that point, but a lot worse about my potential as an engineer. Um, it turns out some of the bars actually twisted and bent during the move, and so the whole thing was virtually worthless now. 
Um, and so this thing sat in my childhood basement for years and years until I graduated college and my mom said, enough is enough, it is time. You need to bring this thing to the dump. So I brought it to the dump, which is now where it rests in peace. <laughs> Not because any of my recent purchases um, have inspired this, but this week I was thinking a lot about buyer's remorse. And so I Googled it, the worst buyer's remorse stories. And let me share a few of my favorites. Um, so a person thought they were buying a Persian rug only to find out it was the size of a coaster. Scale tends to be a pattern in these stories. Uh, a person bought a two-person tent, which was meant for infants. And it was, it was funny because he was a hefty guy and he was actually inside the tent. A person ordered a spring flower arrangement from a local grocery store, which, because of the lack of supply, was substituted for spring onions. <laughs> so they put that in a vase instead. So interneting all of this, this history led me into the California gold rush where the inexperienced prospectors would claim discoveries of gold, but in reality, they would be pyrite, fool's gold, um, which interestingly enough, uh, scientists are now saying may be actually worth something because of the gold alloys that, that could be extracted from it. But if you ask me if anybody wants buyer's remorse, buying rebranded fool's gold seems like a pretty good place to start. I wonder if we're all prone to errors in judgment based on the appearance of things thinking that companies with better advertisements have better products, politicians with better campaigns will better represent our interests, people in, in hiring roles have a pile of resumes in front of them, which leads them to inferential decision-making based off of limited data. I mean, I can't be the only person who goes on Amazon and filters things by, by rating. P uh, perhaps making decisions off of outward appearance or popular opinion is unavoidable to a certain degree, but scripture teaches us that when it comes to leadership in the church, leadership among God's people, care should be taken to avoid outer appearances and, and should be based instead on the, the candidate's heart, on, on the person's character. Our passage today talks about the qualifications of one leader over and against another leader who earlier, in earlier chapters showed his disqualifications by, by the same exact standard. And Samuel, although he is God's judge and his prophet, he needs the Lord's help to actually transition his allegiance from this one king who looks like a king outwardly to another king who looks like a king inwardly. Saul and David for all of their differences, they actually share a lot in common. Um, when we first meet Saul, he is on an errand for his father. He is looking um, in the smallest town of Benjamin for his father's lost mules. They'd wandered away from the pasture. And by the way, he never actually finds them. Instead, he, what he finds is, is Samuel on the road. Samuel has been sent from God, and Samuel tells him that he will be the next, or the, the first king. Saul, like David, had humble beginnings. They both lacked social power. Without military rank or anyone's loyalty, they both tended their father's animals. I mean, they were both described as handsome. They were both anointed by Israel's last judge. 
Samuel. They're both said to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. At least in their origins, David and Saul were a lot alike. So I wonder what sets David apart? Why is he the one chosen to replace Saul? Why is David different? It's this little phrase you're going to hear again and again in this series. David was a man after God's own heart. Sometime before our passage, chapter 13, Saul's leading his people, Israel, in a big battle against a massive Philistine army. Um, and the people are afraid, and they, they begin to scatter. But instead of waiting for Samuel, the prophet, to arrive and, and make an, a sacrifice to God before entering battle, Saul assumes this role and makes a sacrifice himself. He's seen it done before. How hard can it be? The first time we read that phrase, a man after God's own heart, it's, it's when Samuel confronts Saul for his action, this misstep, and says he's going to be replaced by a man after God's own heart. Samuel tells Saul that his lack of obedience, his lack of trust has cost him the throne, and that God has chosen a man after his own heart to replace him as king. Perhaps we could say Saul was a man after the people's heart. But God wanted a leader whose function went beyond political and wartime pragmatism. God wanted faithfulness. What does it take to lead God's people? Let me ask that again. What does it take to lead God's people? There's something in that little phrase, one after God's own heart, that's worth excavating. I mean, David was many things. He was a fearless shepherd boy, a skilled warrior, a courageous leader, a great king. But it's that phrase, a man after God's own heart, that sets him apart from the beginning. He was a man after God's own heart. Um, there are a number of details worth pointing out in our passage. For one, Samuel was called by God to anoint a new king, but he fear feared Saul's retaliation. Um, I mean, you get a sense of the inner working of Saul's reign of terror, that clinging to power. But the detail that I, I want to focus on, and I believe is the most crucial to this passage, is in verse 7. Let me read it. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider Saul's appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. I mean, David's family illustrates this point. I mean, firstly, all the boys take part in a consecration ceremony, except David. Jesse, David's father, basically ranks his children bringing them before Samuel in order from most to least likely until he's out of options. And oh yeah, there, there is that other one, isn't there? Maybe he's bringing them out by age, by accomplishments, intelligence, social position, appearance, talents, education, attainment, or their potential. I mean, David's function in his father's house made him overlooked. As the youngest, as the one busy with the sheep, he was an afterthought for the job. I mean, can you imagine if it wasn't David who was anointed, the conversation around the dinner table that night? I mean, David comes through the door. Wait, did something happen today? Why is everyone dancing? Why is everyone singing? Oh, right, you weren't there. That famous judge, Samuel, he stopped by and anointed your brother as the next king of Israel. We are all so proud. And you didn't think to fetch me? You didn't think I'd want to be there for that? Of course, but the sheep, David, the sheep, they can't be left unattended. 
We're proud of you too. You're such, you do such a good job, but let's just be happy for your brother, okay? I mean, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Bible describes Saul in, in outward terms. I, I mean, he's young, he's handsome, he's tall. It says he's a head above the other men. Um, it says he's a good-natured man too. I mean, he just looked like a king, right? Or at least a commander. Um, George Washington was six foot two. He's a good height for a commanding officer. But some historians describe him with a legendary-like quality to him, like tall, broad, intimidating. I think it was the same thing with Saul. By outward appearances, he was our man. He was the, a king who, by outward appearances, if he was getting deposed, he's worth mourning over. His appearance, his height, his fierce loyalty for the people. He's not willing to be bullied by the Philistines. He's uh, looking to protect the people who live on the margins, the borders, those, those poorer areas. But his heart, David's heart, is what qualified him for the job as king. Namely, that his heart was a heart after God's own heart. Now, I think that one little phrase has some depth to it. Um, which is seen in the whole of David's life. But I want to begin our, our consideration of, of that phrase, which is going to carry throughout our series. I'm going to start by considering it linguistically. That phrase, after God's own heart. It comes in a single word. It's just one word in Hebrew in, in chapter 13, verse 14. Maybe a, a more literalistic translation, like God's heart. Um, the word's made up of a prefixed adverb, a root word, and a marker of possession. So there are three elements to the word in Hebrew. The prefix kaf can mean like or as. I mean, a, a, a word with this prefix usually functions like it's setting up a simile, right? A, like a lion, as a king. My throat was as dry as the desert. In this case, uh, the, the simile is that the future king will be like God's heart. And I understand that to mean one who is like God. For the Hebrew, the heart shared a lot in common with what we attribute to the brain today, the central nervous system. Maybe it was more than that too. The heart, the heart was considered the central unifying organ of one's personal life. Um, it expresses one's inner desires and wishes. It it's reflects their personality. It's, it's that thing that causes and makes decisions. Um, a corrupt heart was seen to, to bear corrupt actions, almost like the fruit of a tree. God's heart, right, and we're engaging in po uh, poetic language here, um, it, it's God's character, God's mo motivating force. And to share God's heart is clearly the, the quality of a leader for God's people, a leader that leads like God leads. I mean, this relates to David because He's revealed as God's choice because of his inner attributes. Saul is pro prophetically disposed because of his outer attributes not being sufficient for him to, to qualify for the job. I mean, Saul looked like a god, but David had the character to rule like God. David was one after God's own heart. Um, I mean, the thing with a simile, and, and really the, the thing with poetic language in general, is that it opens the door for multiple interpretations. I mean, in what ways was David like God? To what extent was David like God? And if David is like God, in what situations do we see God most clearly through the actions of David? 
I mean, the beauty of a mirror, despite how cloudy and imperfect it is, is the image it reflects. It's not the mirror itself. I believe we'll, we'll come to answer this question in, in different ways when we look at the different uh, segments of, of David's life um, throughout this series. What we get from our passage is a message that God sees beyond the surface. I mean, he isn't deterred by the appearance of a thing. I mean, the same thing can be said of David. And perhaps this is one of the reasons that chapter 16 proceeds. It stands right before chapter 17 with David and Goliath. I mean, David is like a God in that he is not deterred by the appearance of a thing. He's like God. David sees beyond the surface, right? This is the, the very thing that disqualifies Saul for the position. Saul could not see beyond the surface of the armies that were departing for, from battle. He, he was deterred by the appearance of, of restlessness among the ranks. When, when, where David trusted beyond appearances, Saul trusted in the appearance of, of this puppet priestly sacrifice to put the soldiers' minds at ease rather than a real sacrifice or, or, or a, a mindfulness, awareness of the God he was sacrificing to. I mean, a real sacrifice, let's not forget, communicates our need for God, um, our, our need for, for him to go before us on the day of battle. It isn't a performance. It isn't merely for the show of it, so that our superstitions are, are, are quieted, are quelled. And like our tithes. I mean, we don't put something in the plate as an outward appearance of having sacrifice to those around us. I mean, we don't come up to partake in the Lord's Supper as a show. We don't come to church as a political act to gain favor and respect. If that's all we're doing this for, then, then we should expect to, to, sow or to reap the fruit of our own shallowness, right? We should expect that our lives will become hollow like Saul's did. I mean, until it was a, a melancholy shell of jealousy and revenge and self-pity. I mean, instead, D David shows us that God actually wants to know us. And he wants us to trust him. I, I, don't you want to hear those words on God's lips? You are one after my own heart. As we apply this passage, this narrative passage, to our lives today. There, there's a clear call in this for all of us to reform our hearts, which isn't vague and abstract. I mean, it's a call to be godly, to choose God as, as our audience of one, the one we do things for. Why? Because God is not a fool. Even though we may be drawn to out, outward appearances of things, I mean, that's not how God sees us. That's not how we should see ourselves. That's not how we should see one another. I mean, the growth of the Christian life is to reflect Jesus individually and as a community. Um, it's not a success, for example, to say, have the Salem Times deem us relevant or caring as a community, especially if that was just because of some publicity stunt we did. I mean, what is success is to have God approve of us, to have God's approval. Um, to live into the, the callings of holiness in, in the many good works he set out for us. There's also, I believe, a call in this passage for those who lead God's people in whatever capacity. 
God's people do not require a show. <laughs> I mean, we're built to encounter the living God. I mean, that was Saul's error judgment. Um, while, while David and Saul may have similar roots, God interrupts Saul because of his self-assertion. Because among God's people, he calls leaders out on the basis of, of godliness. Um, and practically speaking, that means if you want to serve in the church in any capacity, it isn't strictly about your capability, um, because God can equip those he calls, which he does in David's case. Right? He calls David to something much greater than he was. Your capacity to serve God's people, ref it, it, it reflects the degree to which you are a person after God's own heart. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. I mean, David surely wasn't perfect. But the times during David's life when he was most qualified to, to lead God's people was when he was leading a repentant life. And finally, I, I think there's a challenge for how the church calls her leaders, right? When considering the big picture, like the background as well of, of 1 Samuel, it's the story of what happened when, when God gave the people the king they demanded, right, Saul, and then gave the people the king they needed, David. I mean, God's people wanted a king for military purposes so, so that the other nations of the world that were strong would fear them, or at least respect them. Um, but we can't use our leaders to replace God's role in our lives. We can't go to battle as Saul did, trusting in only what the eyes can see. This means we shouldn't trust that just uh, because a pastor is of the right demographic, or just because they are of the right disposition, that they will lead you well. I mean, practically, that means for us, we do diligence as a church. We need to know people well um, so that we aren't, we aren't choosing leaders based off of blind, uh, blindness or, or just outward appearances. Uh, but, but we want to make decisions based off of something deeper, a, a deeper knowledge. We're called to be people after God's own heart. And there's, there's a real depth there, which... Um, I think requires of us to be a people of discernment, right? Of Holy Spirit discernment. Uh, our passage ends with a, a curious phrase um, that talks about the, the Spirit of God coming upon David. I mean, as Christians, we experience something deeper than this. Um, through the gospel, through our union with Christ, we're invited into a more mysterious indwelling relationship with the Holy Spirit. And, and what is that but the, the, the mind of God in you, right? Which allows you to have spiritual discernment. But that's never done in isolation. That, that is a community endeavor. Um, the call of the New Testament church is that we need one another to test the spirits. Um, so I know I've waxed long, perhaps not eloquently, but long. <laughs> um, let me ask you, I mean, don't you want to be a people that exercises judgment from a, a place deeper than outward appearances. I know I do. I mean, our call is to be a people after God's own heart, to reflect God. That, that is the call from this passage, to be, to be like God to one another and to the world. Um, I mean, like Jesus. 
so that when critical decisions have to be made, um, we, we having, have engaged the muscles of community, dis community discernment such that we, we can hear God's voice as a community. And that is possible. The church is always better for members who reflect the heart of Christ. Um, that is my message. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the life of David. I thank you that you call us to be a people after your own heart, um, which means you call us to be like you. Um, and I thank you that um, David can wear a title like that without being perfect because he knows who he trusts in. Um, and I pray that our own dependence would stem not from our, our, our goodness, our, our works of righteousness, but rather it would stem from our deep abiding knowledge of you. Um, pray this in Jesus' name, amen.